Welcome to the Nourish Your Potential podcast. My name is Kushla Holdaway and I'm a registered and accredited sports dietitian based in beautiful New Zealand. I am so glad you have joined me on this podcast where we will discuss science, sports nutrition, running and physiology alongside interviews with athletes, experts and other health professionals. Whether you're listening to this podcast during your commute, your training session or whilst cooking up a storm in the kitchen, you can be reassured information is discussed in a thought-provoking, evidence-based and easy-to-understand manner so that you have more tools in your nutrition toolbox to be your best self. I'm really excited on today's episode to be joined by Caden Shields, an awesome physiotherapist and elite marathon runner based in Christchurch with a PB of 2.15 and also recently became a first-time dad. Caden, thank you so much for taking time on your Sunday to catch up. It's great to have you on the podcast. Oh, thanks very much for having me. For those who might not know you, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and where you grew up and what made you fall in love with running? Um, yeah, I grew up in Dunedin. Um, so I lived there for the majority of my life until um, I moved to the States in 2008. Um, so I've always, yeah, running's always been something I've enjoyed. There's a couple of, I can't really remember why I started running, but um, you know, a lot of it was to do with sport. Um, I was obsessed with rugby growing up and, um, you know, I always wanted to be better at that. And, and one way that my mum said I could be better at that is if I got fitter and, um, ran, we lived next to a hill. She said, oh, if you run up the hill every day, you'll be, you'll be good at, um, running. So by rugby, so I went and ran up the hill beside our house, um, numerous times, but then also got into a habit of running. To, I grew up in Abbotsford, so I used to get into habit of running to Abbotsford School and back, which is probably three or four k. So I was doing that from the, every day from the time I was about would have been about nine years old, I think nine or ten years old. Uh, I got third in the Greater Green Island cross country without any specific training, and so decided in my last year of primary school um, standard four, I think, or uh, year eight now um, that I would trained for it and so I trained for it and won it um, and that was sort of my first taste of, of success and then I went to intermediate and no it must have been year must have been year six yeah and then I went to intermediate year seven and um, and I was fortunate enough to have a teacher who was into triathlon uh, Mr John Linyard and he noticed my running talent pretty early on um, so got us out running after school so I'd run with him two days a week after school and then he would take me to um, cross-country races and track races on a Saturday and yeah it was pretty remarkable really the amount of time he put into me when you're 11 years old you take it 12 years old you take it for granted but he invested a huge amount of time into me and and then I managed to sort of work my way up ranks in Otago and finished I think third or fourth at the intermediate schools cross-country behind a good friend of mine who won it, Callum Moody, who's run to, subsequently run to 11.30 for America. Um, so blossomed on itself, really, and um, I was very fortunate with the people I met. But then 
when I went to high school, John Linyard actually moved to Nelson. So, you know, I was very upset about that because we'd formed quite a close relationship. And so um, at that point in time, again, I was quite lucky that uh, a man called Richard Barker um, came into my life and he started coaching me um, from year nine onwards. And he coached me right up until I left the States in 2008. And he really nurtured my career and um, taught me a lot about um, well, taught me a lot about running, but always um, emphasised that one day I'd be a marathon runner. And I, uh, you know, taught me a lot of principles of training and principles of life, really, and um, set me up for for my adulthood really well. So I've um, got a lot to um, thank him for. And yeah, and then obviously I had my time in the states, which was three years, um, and had a bit of a tumultuous few years coming back from there and and then managed to find my way again um, when I was in my late, well, mid to late 20s, mid 20s. And yeah, and then the last five or six years of my career have been really good. Mm, mm. I've listened to um, other podcasts you've been on where you've talked about your experience in America. America. So you would have been relatively young when you went over, were you? Yeah, I was not as young as some athletes are when they go I'd done a year and a half of university at Otago. Um, I thought I knew a lot. Um, turns out I didn't, but um, <laughs> a normal sort of young male. Um, but, yeah, it was a massive learning curve um, in terms of how to deal with pressure and, you know, the amount of pressure you sort of face, particularly well, I faced um, as a young man. Uh, was immense and I think you know, my coping strategies at that time they were okay but they weren't great um, and yeah that led to some some a fair bit of discomfort while I was there but I got through it and you know I didn't achieve some good things while I was here but um, probably yeah one of the toughest things I've ever been through and I'm not hopefully don't have to go through anything as, as difficult as that again. Mm. And do you feel like that was because you were uh a bit of a, a culture shock and moving over to America so young, or do you think it was the environment you were in? Or yeah, it's just a high pressure environment um, that I wasn't prepared for. Um, I didn't have the skill set to navigate that well. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, I was a full scholarship athlete, which is a rare thing, relatively speaking, and amongst the track team of a hundred athletes, and so there was a lot of pressure on me to perform. Um, and, yeah, as time went on, I, I, I struggled to cope with that pressure. Mm. Um, and, yeah, and so, you know, at times I overtrained and ran through sickness and um, ended up with two pretty severe injuries um, in my last year there just due to, yeah, not taking great care of myself. Um, and really was more about, you know, I think it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult situation because, the power imbalance is quite strong in the sense that, um, you know, your performance on the track um, or on the cross-country course does influence your scholarship status. Um, and, you know, it was quite important for me to maintain my scholarship. I couldn't have afforded to stay there without it. Um, and academics, was, getting a degree was also a really, really important and thing to me. And hindsight probably wouldn't have made much difference if I, if I didn't complete my degree. I could have come back to Otago and did what I did anyway, um, studying physio, but at the time I got quite wound up about 
not being able to finish my degree. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think it was a lot of learning and I wouldn't have performed as well at the World Championships in 2019 had I not gone through that because I had to learn how to, to really deal with pressure mm. um, and f- sort of face up to the things that I was doing that weren't quite so useful uh, in those environments. Mm. And it's always those really hard experiences in life where we learn the most from. We wouldn't do again, but uh, they definitely shape who we are. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Um, one of the reasons we had to shuffle around today's appointment was you said there was some training you were doing for Hamburg Marathon. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that and what your current training is looking like in the lead up to Hamburg? Yeah, so I was um, pretty stoked to be announced in the elite field of um, Hamburg Marathon a couple of weeks ago. So I've been working on it for a little while. Well, ever since the pandemic hit, really, I've been trying to get into another international race somehow. Um, there was a few opportunities that came and went um, just in terms of sort of not knowing really what different requirements there were for entering countries and um, leaving New Zealand and that type of thing. And So it took a while really for, um, for us to nail something down um, I had an, an offer to go to a race in Italy last Easter but that was um, the same weekend that Italy was going into a nationwide lockdown and so I wasn't prepared to sort of take the risk of traveling all the way to Italy and then the race being cancelled um, and then having to spend two weeks in MRQ so I forgave that that opportunity and then um, managed to get a race in Australia last year um, which was a good opportunity but um, unfortunately it's uh, minimal competition so, uh, it's, yeah, it's pretty exciting to, to get an opportunity to run in Hamburg and, you know, with the border um, being a bit freer to cross now, um, it's, yeah, less, less impact on other parts of my life. So, yeah, so training has only really just begun. I sort of started on an eight-week build-up. So, normally would do eight to ten weeks for a marathon build-up. I've done 12 weeks in the past, which is a bit long. It's sort of the last month and not really getting any better. And my last, and even last year when I ran the race in Sydney, like the last three weeks, I didn't really improve. Um, my last training session was about as good as I raced. So um, this time around, we decided to go for a straight eight-week build-up. But I've come off a track season, so I've been, like I sort of never really dropped my volume below 150k a week. Um, haven't done for, for several years now. Um, so I'm always running a lot just because I have to to run well even at shorter distances. Um, but I just sort of come in with a little bit more marathon-specific work. So we do a bit of a reverse periodization where we work on my leg speed for a while, which is doing the track races and trying to improve anaerobic threshold, running economy at higher speeds. And then once we've got a um, time frame for a marathon, then we go back into uh, more aerobic or sub-threshold running and um, long running and... But again, like I always get my long run pretty high, like two and a half hours, two hours 40 during the, most of the year. Um, and then just to take it up to three hours for specific marathon build-ups um, and just run them a bit faster as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I'm sort of just starting that now. Um, have done a couple of good weekends of long runs and got my volume up to about 180k a week. Um, I don't actually measure my k's but i based on minutes so normally sort of 700 to 750 minutes um so you yeah. never track your runs no no gps data whatsoever what? <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy oh, i have done in the past like on and off i'll use 
you know, for a long run now and then I'll check it. But you just end up watching your splits and you stop enjoying the run. You can get so outcome focused that you, you stop focusing on the process of what you're trying to do. And um, yeah, it's really important, you know, even in a race to focus on the process rather than the outcome because you get a little bit hung up on the outcome and it can hold you back. So um, in training, you really, I think it's important to focus on what you're actually trying to do, which is, um, you know, focus on your running and how your brain's working when you're running, um, what your mechanics are like, those sorts of things, rather than worrying too much about what case you're splitting. So you track your time, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. and heart rate heart data rate. most oh, of the time. I was yeah. going to say, what about heart rate? <laughs> yeah, definitely heart rate. Um, just to manage efforts because... You know, I think feel-based training is good, um, but sometimes you can feel better. Um, you know, you can have a bit of adrenaline going or something like that, and it gives you a perceived feeling of being fitter, but the object of data might not might not say that. So to manage my efforts, yeah, I'd definitely use heart rate, um, particularly on the long runs. Like I'll have sections of a long run. You know, on the flats, I'll try and stay below 150, and then on the hills, I try and stay below 164. Um, and then... Yeah, obviously just let it drop on the downhills. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so you definitely use heart rate, more reliable, I think, in terms of managing efforts. But, you know, if anything, that's aerobic. As soon as you start getting into anaerobic stuff, it's, it's not really that important. Yeah, or shorter intervals, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And doing that kind of mileage each week, is, is most days for you a double run day? Yeah, six days a week I run twice. Yeah. So... Um, Running to and from work makes that a bit easier. Um, so I live pretty close to work. I'm only, I only live like two kilometres from work, but um, I'll run. We live next to the Avon River, so I just run along the Avon River into town and then do a loop through town to get to 5K in the mornings. And then depends what time of day I'm starting. If I start like 7.30am start, I'll do sort of 5K before work. And then, um, yeah, in the evenings I'll do a longer run. Yeah. Yeah. And then if I start a little bit later, I'll, I'll do it the other way around. And have you had to change much of your typical week of training with having a baby now? Um, no, not really. Just probably being a bit more flexible with when I go running. Mm. Um, so normally for a long run, I'd sort of get out of bed at 7, get on the road at 8. Um, but yesterday I didn't get out of the door till sort of 10, 15. Yeah. Um, once I made my wife breakfast and um, a coffee and vacuumed the house and hung out the washing. Oh, you're good. <laughs> so, yeah. So... Um, just being a bit more flexible is probably the key thing, like not getting too hung up about um, when I'm doing things, but just probably more when it suits um, yeah. in terms of making sure my wife's well yeah, fed and watered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah nice. Um, I wanted to talk with you a little bit about motivation versus dedication. So, you know, motivation's great while it hangs around, but nobody experiences motivation all the time. Um, and there's many days where we sometimes just can't be bothered. So for those out there who really struggle with being consistent with their training uh, or, or goals, um, specifically around running, can you talk us through how you personally deal with periods where you feel quite unmotivated with training or running? No, there wouldn't be many days. I mean, I'm a bit of a running fanatic. So there wouldn't be many days where I wouldn't... Um, want to go for a run and actually if you ask my wife she'd say there's never a day so I think running for me is like breathing um I just have to run um to be my best self 
So, yeah, I think there wouldn't be many days where I, I don't have the motivation to run. Probably after Doha, was there was one day where all I felt like doing was sitting on the couch. Um, and I think that's quite normal after it's sort of a pinnacle event like that. Yeah. I still ran that day, but I just didn't do an hour and a half. I just did you know, half an hour. <laughs> yeah. So, or an hour or something like that. So, yeah, there wouldn't be many days where I don't feel like running. I think when it comes to performance, there's certainly days where I don't feel like going for a three-hour run um, or doing a hard training session like because of that, you know, they do hurt. Um, they're uncomfortable. So it's quite normal not to want to do those things. Um, and that's where, you know, you just have to ask yourself hard questions really. Like, you know, if you're aiming to set a goal for something, you have to be quite honest with yourself about is your preparation actually in line with the goal you're trying to set. And that's something probably in the past I haven't been very good at. Um, but these days I make sure I'm asking myself that question pretty regularly. Like, is what I'm doing actually in line with what I want to do um, in terms of goals? So, yeah, I think there's certainly, like, I think probably moving forward, I'll always run 80 to 100k a week because that's sort of a period of running that I can maintain and it's quite comfortable and easy to do. For me personally, but um, you know, 180k a week—that's a lot of that. You know, you are running at times where you don't feel like running. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think it really depends on what what's important to you. At the moment, performance is important to me, but then running every day is important to me as well. So it's probably yeah, there's a percentage split there where the running's for well-being, and then the rest of it's for performance. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, and. Um, with running being such a natural part of your day, have you ever had to deal with setbacks of injuries and being forced not to run? Yeah, certainly, yeah. I've spent months not running, yeah. Um, particularly in my teenage years, I've spent a lot of time with patellofemoral pain, which, um, you know, what we know about low management and peripheral sensitization and those sorts of things these days, like, like, you know, I probably wouldn't have, spent that long not running but um at that point in time what we understood about patellofemoral pain and what we know now is quite you know is a bit different so um i did spend sort of six or seven months at a time not running in my high school years mm, wow. two or three years where half the year i didn't run um which was quite difficult and running was my social well part of my i had a lot of friends that didn't run so that was good but you know running was really really important to me as a teenager and yeah, but not being able to do that was, was tough. But I still went to trainings and that sort of thing. Even if I couldn't run, I'd go for a walk or something like that. Yeah. Um, and I did a lot of swimming, a lot of aqua jogging. And then, yeah, again, in my early 20s, with I had two femoral stress fractures in 2011, and, uh, 2010, 2011, um, and I had to spend a couple of months not running mm-hmm. as a result of that. So, and then I had another calcaneal stress fracture in 2016, so that took me out for... Um, short while mm. fortunately enough i've only had about three days off running since 2016 now mm. so yeah. um yeah and two of them due to a vomiting bug and then once because i just that was after the sydney marathon last year i just didn't feel like running yeah. um but yeah so yeah i certainly have um so i commiserate with people that can't run mm. and as a physio i try my best not to have to stop people running because yeah. I know it's you know the importance of maintaining it, but obviously in some circumstances you do, yeah. um, which is difficult. But I think if I share that my stories with people, that always helps. I think. Mm. Yeah, definitely makes you more relatable. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. just try and, you know, what it feels like yeah. type scenario. Yeah. And um, you just mentioned Doha before. So Doha being one of your running career highlights, amazing, representing New Zealand over there in 2019. I'm really interested to know, obviously, very different conditions to what you would have been training in New Zealand. How did you prepare for the heat over there? Yes, we were quite lucky. Um, the Ethnic New Zealand really invested in Doha um, in terms of preparing us for the heat. And a large part because Tokyo was obviously um, predicted to be really, really hot. So they wanted to know um, how best to prepare athletes for, for racing in the heat. And so um, we went to – I qualified in July of 2019 at the Gold Coast Marathon and then straight away Athletics New Zealand sort of contacted me and said, look, we're going to Cyprus in two weeks. Do you want to come? Um, and my coach was pretty firm with me. He's like, if you want to run one of the world champs, you need to you need to go. So I jumped on a plane two weeks after Gold Coast and flew to Cyprus, which was pretty awesome. And yeah, that was the middle of the summer in Cyprus, so I was, you know, up to 40 degrees um, each day. But most of the time we were running in sort of 37-degree weather. So I went from the winter of New Zealand to um, immediately training in 37-degree weather. <laughs> nice. um, and I had a... I had a respiratory virus at the same time that I picked up after Gold Coast and so I was quite unwell actually. So I was running, trying to pretend I was okay. Um, but, um, I, I just jogged for two weeks in the heat so it wasn't um, a lot of running. But um, that was really good and we did a heap of um, sort of uh, core temperature testing and skin temperature testing um, while we were training there and then tried different strategies for cooling our core temperatures um, pre-run um, and then post-run as well. And, yeah, so that was really useful. Um, and then we came up with a fueling strategy as well, which wasn't actually too dissimilar to what I'd used in um, previous, uh, well, in Gold Coast. It was just a little bit more carbohydrate intake. Yeah. Um, and then just a little bit of isotonics. But I don't have – we also tested um, sweat rates. And, um, yeah, I don't sweat a lot. Or don't lose a lot of um, salts in my sweat, so I didn't have to worry too much about using mm. isotonics in the marathon. Yeah. Mm. What was your sweat rate when you tested it? In- oh, I can't remember. Oh, very interesting to know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, and the other thing with Doha, it was quite a, like it was late at night when you did the race. Um, so how? Uh, yeah. What time was it at night? Uh, we started at eleven fifty nine pm. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it was fairly late. Um, yeah, so that didn't bother me actually. I sort of wasn't concerned about that. Um, I mean, it was good because it wasn't super hot. Um, you know, it was still 30 degrees, but it wasn't 40. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, a lot of people got concerned about it. I'd say that, fortunately enough, one good thing about running in the States is that we ran in uh, a lot of races at night, sort of 10 p.m onwards and I'd actually run my 10k PB at night in Philadelphia at, at midnight as well because the race got was meant to be at I think 10 and it was delayed two hours mm. so I ended up running mid, at midnight um then so yeah that wasn't yeah anything that I was particularly concerned about but we did um a couple of training sessions late at night uh, in Cyprus because we went to Cyprus twice so we went once and we came back to New Zealand for about five weeks and then we flew back again two weeks or three weeks before the World Champs mm. and did another stint and I did a training session at 10pm at night 
and it was about 26 degrees and I wore three layers of clothing and um, yeah, I was fine. I did a 45 minute run at marathon pace and had ran that a quite a bit quicker than I'd run for my session prior, similar session prior to Gold Coast. So I sort of knew I was in pretty good nick at that point. Um, so yeah, so I was fairly confident with the night, um, the night race. Yeah, because I was just thinking with regards to um, your fueling strategy too, like obviously that's quite a different time of the day for your body to be managing that. Um, so I was just mm. interested to know if you'd specifically trained with your nutrition running at like midnight. Um, mm. Yeah, just that once really. I sort of had decided, because it was something that we talked a lot about and I had to, I just decided like sort of in the build-up I was not concerned about it, but I thought... Mm. I didn't think I was going to have any problems. And fortunately enough, I turned out to be correct. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's definitely something that a lot of athletes considered. And I think a lot of athletes did do plenty of testing at night just to make sure that they were okay. But I, I did reset my circadian rhythm slightly. Like when I was um, the week leading up to the race, I sort of went to bed pretty late, um, like sort of midnight or 1 a.m. and got up around 10 a.m. So yeah. sort of just pushed out by um, circadian rhythm just a touch. Yeah. Cool. Uh, and with your nutrition as a whole, um, you know, as a runner, and I can imagine as an elite runner as well, there there is pressure, I can imagine, to um, look a certain way or, or look like a runner. Would you say your experience with nutrition's always been a positive one? Yeah, I've never been concerned about um, weight or anything like that. Um, just, I mean, I, you know, I was born to be a runner. And I've always been very, very lean. I, yeah, I don't think I'd weigh over 70 kgs even if I stopped running. Um, just genetically, I mean, my dad's got smaller legs than I do. <laughs> um, so my grandfather, had, he was pretty tiny too. So genetically, I think, you know, it's just my body composition. But, um, you know, probably the one, I've been a bit lazy with food. Um my mother was very good at cooking for me when I was in, when I was growing up, and always making sure I had good food in the house. And then when I went to the states, I was in a dormitory for two years and had good access to, you know, fairly good food, probably a bit overprocessed, but um, my gut didn't like that. Um, but once I started flooding, that was a real issue because I just didn't know how to feed myself. And often when I trained too hard, I'd, my appetite would be suppressed as well. So I'd lose appetite mm-hmm. um, and often just didn't have the energy to cook. So, yeah, I didn't eat that well when I was flatting. And I think that was a large contributor to my femoral stress fracture and a number of um, other reasons as well. But I certainly, yeah, I've been definitely had reds um, a couple of times, particularly in 2009 I was – when I made the NCAA cross-country chance, I definitely say I was reds in. There's a photo of me running that race, and I think I weighed about 58 kgs in. And, yeah, I look at that photo, I'm like, man, I was pretty unwell, I think. Like, I performed well that day, but um, I was really, really thin, mm. and I certainly haven't been that thin again. Um, but, yeah, I do have low bone density. Last time it was measured. And but I'm interested to measure it again because I have had pretty good nutrition over the last sort of six years, um, and have been quite strict about it. Every it's funny, all my colleagues give me grief about eating similar things, um, particularly my muesli and yogurt and berries that I have at 
morning tea every day. But I really enjoy it and it's nutritious and um, it's quite a good sort of bridge meal between my early breakfast and lunch. And I've just got into a good habit of having leftovers and trying to make enough to have leftovers for lunch. Um, and then I always have a good dinner. So, so yeah, nutrition's never been, it's probably just laziness really of anything for me, just in lack of interest in cooking. Um, I still don't particularly enjoy cooking, but I cook out of obviously the need to mm. and to support more my wife. But uh, yeah, I've never had a passion for, for cooking. <laughs> Maybe we can change that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. I, I don't mind making a curry. <laughs> I know there's something about a curry I quite enjoy making. But, yeah. yeah. Anything. Oh, I don't mind cooking a steak, but yeah. I think, yeah, I need to get myself a barbecue for the summer, next summer. Sounds like a Might good be idea. passionate about the barbecue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think every Kiwi guy is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, with um, having reds, um, do, you, do you think that was a um, more like an overtraining thing than like obviously intentional inadequate food intake? Yeah, definitely. Um, training and just lack of management. Mm. Yeah, just a lack of interest and again probably going back to what we were talking about before around motivation like a lack of being honest about how well I was managing myself outside of training mm. <clears throat> you know I always sort of particularly when I was younger I always sort of thought you know I train hard it means I'm going to get results but and I did for a long time mm. but, but, you know I had actually been looking at how well I was recovering outside of training in terms mm. of diet and sleep um, I used to study far too much I was a pretty determined young man yeah. in um you know, it wasn't unusual for me to study up to 12 hours a day as well as training. So, yeah, um, yeah so I was, I was pretty determined to, and, 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 and the same sort of breath kind of neglect those important things to keep yourself well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier about uh, your coach in your younger years saying you'd, you know, eventually make a great marathon runner. What are your thoughts on where people peak with, say running distances like is it true that people in their younger years would generally do better over shorter distances and as we get older we tend to do better in like marathons and ultras yeah i think it takes time to build the running economy to run a good marathon so like sort of the other thing the marathon is a big mental game and also the management is really important so i wouldn't have been a great marathon runner in my early 20s because i couldn't manage myself that well outside of training so you know, the, the marathon, you've got to be, obviously, you've got one shot, one opportunity in, every, you know, over, say, six months. And then when it comes to international marathon, you might get one opportunity a year. If lucky in my circumstance with the pandemic, it's been one opportunity every three years. So you sort of, it's not like track where you can just show up next week and run another race. So the management's really important. And so that takes maturity and experience to know how to manage yourself, particularly with travel and um, yeah, your nutrition leading up and your sleep and even just managing the pressure. Um, so I think that's why you see a lot of, or a big reason why you see a lot of marathon runners doing well in their late 20s, early 30s. And, you know, and a lot of marathon runners are going well in their late 30s. Um, and, yeah, again, it takes just takes time to build the resiliency in the running economy to, to run a good marathon. And then, yeah, obviously your speed does peter out a wee bit as you get older and as your testosterone levels drop. Um, I would say I'm, I've been able to maintain my speed. I'm running the same for 5K essentially as I was 12, 13 years ago. Um, 
so I thought I would, would have thought I would have got better at the 5k and probably when I was in the States I could have run a bit quicker than I did um, but yeah by and large I mean I ran my 5k PB in 2018 and then I got, I've been pretty close to it every almost every year since then mm-hmm. so yeah so I've been able to maintain that but certainly my running economy is a lot better than it was say 10 years ago and that's just through exposure and time yeah. And then, yeah, my race day management's a lot better as well, so it helps. And then my mental um, side of things is a lot better as well when, when it comes to running. So, yeah, so I think it's probably a bit more individual dependent mm-hmm. than just um, in sort of a given rule. Um, and a lot of guys stay on track these days. Um, you know, there's guys in the US like Ben Blankenship who's still running. He's my age and we race together in the States. He's still running great 1500s and miles and stuff like that um and obviously nick willis stayed racing and still medal um at the olympics um in 2016 so yeah i think it depends but on the athlete mm. but by and large you tend to see a lot of marathon runners you know being in their early 30s and then a lot of track runners being in their mid-20s yeah mm. Mm. there's hope for me yet <laughs> yeah <laughs> um what is your 5k pb uh 14 20 oh so what's that per K? Two. Two fifty two. Two fifty two. Okay, so I think yeah. if I'm like doing a sprint or a stride, I can like maybe hit that speed. That's Possibly, over like a yeah. hundred meters, and I and I often think like, oh my gosh, people run marathons basically at this speed for forty k's. Well, Kipchoge's two was <laughs> two fifty per K. Yeah. yeah, blows my mind. Incredible. It blows mine too. <laughs> Um, just lastly, before we dive into more physio-specific topics, I was actually talking to Dan about this other day too, so I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, do you think anyone is capable of becoming elite or, say, really competitive if they work really hard? Like, Or, or will genetics always limit them? Like, can hard work trump talent? Yeah, it's a good question. I suppose it def- depends on what. Elite's quite a broad mm. term, I suppose. Like, I think... Everybody, it's pretty hard for anybody to reach their potential. Like, if you can finish your career saying you reached your potential, that's a pretty remarkable thing to say. Because I think if you ask most athletes, I don't think they've reached their potential. So, um, so I think hard work makes up a large portion of it. Hard work alone doesn't get you there, though. Um, so it's being able to, and, and that's something I had to figure out. You know, I always thought it's just if I just push myself harder, it would mean I get better. It's not always the case. Um, so it's more about are you willing to learn is probably the the biggest thing. So I think the athletes that do the best are the ones that are keen to learn. So they're not too hung up on their results in the sense that, you know, they're able to step back from the outcome and, and go, well, how can I get better? And be not be afraid to change strategies. That's something I was always afraid of changing and still a little bit afraid of changing still creates like even yesterday I was on my long run and I was like oh have I done enough long runs and you know it's sort of yeah you, you've got to be okay with taking a few risks and training and changing what you're doing but I think yeah the athletes that do the best are the ones that are willing to learn and but obviously you have to be consistent and work hard but you also have to be able to learn because mm-hmm. you can keep repeating the same mistake over and over again so yeah I think you know, it's a combination of all those things. Certainly, like, to win an Olympic medal, you need bucket loads of talent and also work hard and um, learn. Whereas, um, 
you know, you can certainly make an elite level without bucket loads of talent, without a doubt. Um, you know, if you can run under 15 minutes for 5K, you know, you could run a pretty good marathon. So for, for males. Um, so I think, and, and, you know, you certainly wouldn't consider a sub 15 minute 5K, you know, just under 15 minutes 5K elite. So, yeah, it's, yeah, I certainly think you can, you can get a lot out of yourself and, but to, yeah, to be the best of the best, I think you definitely have to have a lot of talent. But to to get to a championship event, um, not necessarily. Mm. But a little bit of talent. Yeah, you know, I, I sort of think to, to myself at times that I'm not, I wasn't that talented. But then if I reflect on it, I was still pretty talented. Yeah, um, <laughs> I've always had a, a knack for running. But I compare myself to to athletes that are better than me, more talented than I am. Mm. It's the comparison, um, better, though, isn't it? Yeah. That's why I said when people say, "Oh, you know," often people say to me, "Oh, I'm, you know, I run pretty well, but not not as good as you." And I was like, "Well, it's all relative, really." Like, mm-hmm. you know, I compare myself to the best marathon runners in the world, and I can't run. You know, they're running my five k pace for for a marathon. You know, we're just not even in the same ballpark. Yeah, it's it all it's all relative. But I think ultimately, at the end of the day, it's all about just trying to reach your potential. And if you can do that, that's pretty awesome. So mm-hmm. I don't think I ever reached my potential on the track. Um, and I hope I can in the marathon. Mm. At least get as close as possible. Yeah. That's the awesome thing about running too, isn't it? Is you can push as hard as you like on your own journey and try and find where your potential is. It's, it's yeah, good. that's yeah. what it's all about, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, if we can find our own limits, we'll get pretty close to them. That's all you can ask for. Yeah, definitely. No, great points. Thanks, Caden. That's cool. Um, to quiz your physio brain a little bit now, um, mm-hmm. in your day-to-day practice, what are some of the most common mistakes you'd see in, in runners specifically? I think um, one way I like to describe injury often is that your cardiovascular systems and your musculoskeletal systems often develop at slightly different rates. And so, again, it comes back to sort of everybody's individual physiology, but you tend to find some people get really fit quite quickly from a cardiovascular sense. But then, and you might see that in like a cross, um, you know, someone going from cycling to running, for example, they haven't run much, they've been a cyclist and going to running and obviously quite different sports. They've got the heart and the lungs to cope with running, but their musculoskeletal system might not necessarily have the resiliency to. So I think a lot of the time that's where I see people not quite, um, matching those two things well. And you see that a lot in very young athletes um, they, and that can lead to some significant injuries. Uh, and then you also see that in, in older runners as well. Um, and often people just uh, often run too hard. So usually I'm trying to tell people to slow down. <laughs> um, so there's a time and place to run hard, but um, I think the frequency of how hard you run is, is really important. Frequency of when you run hard. Mm-hmm. How hard you're running for. So often it is more, it's about matching, um, getting the load management right, really. That's mm-hmm. one of the biggest things. Yeah. And avoiding training in that grey area. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's easier to keep pushing. Mm-hmm. It's sort of, yeah, knowing when to push is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, with shin pain, so thinking about my own experience with a tibial stress fracture, 
For people who, because shin splints are something very common in runners as well, how can people know the signs and symptoms between, you know, the start of a, say, tibial stress fracture versus just shin splints? What are some of the warning signs people should look out for? Yeah, when you sent me that question, I sort of thought it's um, not that easy, which is probably why <laughs> people um, do end up completing, you know, say a stress reaction into a stress fracture. Mm-hmm. Um one of the main diagnostic tools I use is just pain with loading, essentially. So, like, single leg hop is a really good indication of whether or not someone should be running on a, you know, an injury, in particular shin pain. So, like, if I get someone who has shin pain and I get them to um, hop on one leg and, you know, significant loss of power, quite significant pain, um, and pain that is an unacceptable level of pain for them, um, as well, it's pretty hard to. I mean, I've never been able to run through a stress fracture, so um, the pain levels have been far too high. Mm. And obviously, I do see people running through them, but very rarely. So most of the time, it stops people on their tracks. Um, but yeah, generally, like typical stress, which is the way we use these days for rather than shin splints. Um, you know, generally, it's an acceptable level of discomfort that people can still run through. You know, less. You know, if you rank it out of 10, 10 being worst pain ever, zero and being no pain at all. Most of the time, it's low level pain. So, one to two out of ten, it may ease as they get running and then be worse afterwards. Mm. But bone pain doesn't get better when you um, generally when you run on it, it gets worse. Mm. So, um, so yeah, it's probably more the severity of pain. Um, but you know, I'd recommend anybody that's getting, you know, is concerned about their shin pain they should seek help mm. um, ASAP really it's good to get like some clear guidance early on um, rather than letting it develop into something worse because mm. if you get it you know if you catch it early you can mitigate it pretty quickly yeah. and then it's looking into the reasons why it may have happened but mm. yeah it is very individual dependent though because everybody's perception of pain is quite different mm. um, but generally you know if someone's really in significant pain with loading and they've altered their movement patterns as a result of the pain that's when I'm quite concerned about um, you know it being a stress fracture and that's when I'll refer pretty quickly on sports position yeah yeah, yeah. and I guess the stress fracture is very um, different from say a tendon injury where tendons require um, load to get better can you tell us a little bit more about how how tendons work and why that is well, both require load to get better, but it's just the amount of load. So office, obviously with a stress fracture, you need to offload it for a period of time to let healing place, but then for the bone to get stronger moving forward, you do need to load it. Um, but you want to be loading it pain-free. So with bone pain, you want to load completely pain-free. Whereas with tendon pain, you can load it with some element of discomfort, but again, it has to be um, an acceptable level of discomfort. So um, quite manageable, not offload, you know, not causing you to limp um but tendons you know we use them as springs so we store energy in them and release them when we're running and particularly the achilles tendon is its primary role is to do that and then it's supported by the other tendons of the foot and ankle such as the posterior tibialis and the perineals so um with tendon pain you tend to see it's sort of can be quite sore at the start of a run and then eases up and then um, can be quite sore afterwards and then mornings it can be quite stiff and sore as well and now and then you can get it aching at night but um, usually that's when it's quite progressed um, so generally if someone's sort of warming up into the pain and the pain resolves 
and then only returns afterwards, I'll keep them doing some element of running, but I might reduce their intensity and their volume. Mm. And that's good just to maintain the resiliency of the tendon because if you completely deload the tendon, it'll decondition, and so mm. you lose capacity. So if you look at a tendon in terms of load versus capacity, you need to find the right balance between those two things. So how much load am I doing? Is this exceeding the capacity of the tendon? Um, or is it quite an, is it not quite enough loading to improve the capacity of the tendon? So that, again, that changes from um, week to week um, and is influenced by other factors. But by and large, if you can get the balance right, you can keep people running with tendon injuries. But yeah, it depends on the severity. And if you get a really acute tendon, you I'll generally deload them for a week or three days to a week, just enough to settle them so they can hop. You know, if it's, if it's an Achilles tendon, they can hop pain-free. And then I'll start reloading them again at that point because there's no real benefit to be gained, you know, no real um, your benefit to be gained from continuing deloading at that point. Mm-hmm. But essentially it's about around the pain severity. And if you do keep training on a pretty grumpy tendon, it'll just become chronic. So you've got to get that initial acute management right. And that's another good reason to, to seek some help pretty quickly in the in the phase. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How can people contact you or reach out if they're worried about anything? Yeah, I have a website now, which is um, cadenshieldsphysio.com. So I've tried to keep it simple. Um, and my contact details are on there, so you can email me or um, make an online booking. Cool. So um, generally, I yeah, prefer to see people Obviously, yeah, I won't. I won't generally give advice unless I um, see people in a consult. So, um, yeah, so just obvious to make sure that the, the, the advice is good advice. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's certainly where people can contact me. Mm. Cool, great. And are you taking new clients at the moment? Yeah, yeah. always taking new clients. Yeah. Awesome. Um, sometimes there's a couple of weeks wait, but generally, you know, I can depending on this you know type of problem, like a triage. Um, so yeah if something very acute I always try and make time for people so uh, just a matter of reaching out and um, shooting me an email and yeah cool awesome is there anything else you wanted to add to that today no it's um, very thorough thanks no thanks so much for joining me today Caden and super excited to follow your journey in Hamburg soon um, as I'm sure many other Kiwis are as well so all the best over there and hopefully we can catch up again soon Cool, thank you. Thanks.